Hey friends, I hope you're all staying as safe and healthy and comfortable as possible, and that you're taking care of all the people and pets and plants that are important to you. Uh, my wife and daughter and myself went away last week to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. It was a great week weather-wise. As you can probably imagine, there's a lot to do in the Appalachian Mountains, most activities concerning hiking and sightseeing. And while I do participate in those activities, for me, the best part of taking a week off from work is it gives me the time to do what I love to do most, and that is read. And last week, in addition to reading, yes, The Tormato Story by our guest today, Kevin Mulrine, I also read The Psychopath Test by John Ronson. Now, if you're like me and you love to read and you have some time off this summer and you're looking for some quality literature, in addition to considering our guest's book, I would like to ask that you kindly consider any or all of my novels. Uh, there are no ads on the People Are the Enemy podcast, and, and there is no Patreon set up for it, but I am a self-published author with 10 titles currently available for purchase worldwide in both paperback and ebook formats via Amazon. And if you don't use Amazon, you can purchase all of my stories in ebook format at Google Play. Just search my last name, M-A-S-C-O-L-A. That's how you'll find me on Google Play. If you've already purchased any or all of my novels, thank you, thank you, thank you. I sincerely appreciate your generous patronage. And with all that out of the way, here's the quirky theme song. Enemy listeners, this is episode 283 of the People Are the Enemy podcast. Thank you so much for checking it out. We've got a great episode for you. For over 10 years, our guest Kevin Mulrine has hosted the Yes Music podcast, a free weekly show Kevin founded and now hosts with co-host Mark Anthony Kay. Each week, Kevin and Mark feature an album, an interview, or another part of the extensive world of Yes, the world's greatest progressive rock band. Additionally, Kevin is an award-winning audiobook producer and narrator and online radio co-founder. Kevin's new book, Yes, the Tormato Story, features a foreword by former Yes keyboardist Oliver Wakeman and details every imaginable aspect of Tormato, Yes's last album of the 1970s, from its conception and creation to its marketing and reception. Listeners, if you know me, then you know I'm always interested in artistic works that polarize fans and critics alike, and Yes's album Tormato is most definitely a polarizing work, and I'm thrilled to be able to speak with Kevin today about the album and about his new book. So without any further ado, let's speak now with the author of Yes, the Tormato Story, Kevin Mulrine. Kevin, are you there? Hello there. Yes, I'm here. Oh, excellent. Kevin, anyone who's ever seen the cover art for Yes's 1978 album, Tormato, will understand why I'm about to ask you this question. And, and while the question is obviously meant to be funny, uh, the matter of who exactly threw the tomato that appears on the album's cover did seem to be a contentious factoid with both Yes's keyboardist Rick Wakeman 
and someone at the art design group hypnosis claiming responsibility for throwing the tomato splattered across the artwork. Who, who do you think threw the tomato? Well, I, I did ask Rick Wakeman recently who did that, and he was absolutely convinced that it was him. And to be honest, <laughs> listening to his uh, to his response to my question, I think probably it is. Nobody really remembers particularly well. I mean, we're talking about 45 years ago that this was all all happening. And I also spoke to to guitarist Steve Howe about it as well, and he really can't remember either. But yes, you're right. The the legendary um, art uh, uh, company, Hypnosis, were responsible for the album cover. And I think the story basically was that they came and showed the band the cover. The band were not very impressed with it at all. And somebody threw this tomato at it, and and, and hypnosis thought, well, that, that that's a, that's a decent idea. So they took it back to their studios and re re uh, photographed it and presented it then as the as the album cover. And and by that stage, the band had just had enough, and they said, oh, all right, then let's just go with it. <laughs> very cool, very cool. Kevin Tomato came out in 1978. It was Yes's last album of the 1970s. It was considered very polarizing, as I'd mentioned, with fans and critics alike, some seeming to either not care for it or some who liked it quite a bit. Now, in your book, you mentioned Tormato going out of print in the 80s and being completely omitted from Yes's <clears throat> official discographies printed in the, the band's 1984, 1987, and 1991 tour books. Since the 2000s, however, Tormato has been remastered and remarketed in a deluxe edition with bonus tracks and in 2018 the albums for the album's 40th anniversary it was given the picture disc treatment for a limited record store day pressing and, and now here we are in 2023 your book yes the tormato story is released time would seem to have vindicated the initial criticism of tormato why do you why do you think that is well, it's fascinating, isn't it? And being able to look back now, it's it's easy for us to say, actually, there's there's quite a bit to like on this album. Uh, but at the time, the band were riding high, really, after their release of Going for the One, which contains some of the, the most typical, I suppose you could call it, yes, classic, epic music of all time. And Rick Wakeman had rejoined the band as the, the wizard, on the keyboards for going for the one, although he wasn't officially a member initially, but yes, he was back. And then, so this album was to follow that up. They had done a very successful tour. Uh, they were known both as an amazing studio band and an amazing live band throughout the seventies, the which really was their heyday before they imploded in about 1979. Um, so they, there was a huge amount of hype over this record before it came out. And for the first time ever, for a Yes album, the the band went sorry the record went gold status in the UK, and that was the first Yes record that had gone gold before the release um, of all time, and it sold a great number of copies. But a lot of Yes fans were very disappointed with the music on it and also the production of it. Uh, but I, what I go into in the book is the reception at the time. And I found it very difficult, although I found some some reviews, some press reviews saying that it wasn't a very good record. I didn't hear any, I didn't see any um, reviews uh, criticising the, the mixing and the, the general sound of the album. And that's really what, over the years, uh, those Yes fans who hate 
this album have pointed to is the is the muddy and thin and and nasty sound of the record even though at the time as i say none of the reviews even mentioned that so so yeah it was a bit of a reaction to how glorious the previous record had been and um and the difference between that and what was on this record i think very good kevin in your book one of the the features i loved were the photos and descriptions of the many formats Tormato was marketed in around the mm. world. Now, at last count, you say in your book, you personally have accumulated no less than 57 copies of Tormato in, in various formats. Now, as a music collector myself, yeah. I find this absolutely remarkable. Are there any other Yes albums that you own this many copies of? No, absolutely not. <laughs> and uh, what really kicked me off collecting this in a rather rather extensive way was the, the the variations in cassettes so audio cassettes from around the world from 78 i suppose up until mid 80s maybe late 80s that they were producing cassettes there, there are so many different variations and interesting looking variations uh, from around the world and that's because of course uh, yes who had been known for their roger dean artwork art covers had always been renowned for their for their cover artwork, and then there was all this this squash tomato and all all that nonsense about this cover. But whatever the cover, if you're converting a vinyl record into a cassette version, you've got to do something about the fact that the cassettes are rectangular and vinyl records are square. So you need to do something. Either you need to crop the the original artwork to make it fit onto a cassette or do some bands of colour or something more creative. And so that means that I've got, I've got almost all the variations from around the world, not quite. There's one Japanese one that I'm desperate to get hold of and haven't been able to find yet. But I do have 24 different versions on cassette of the album, all of which uh, look rather different to each other. So, so that's been a fascinating uh, boost to my collecting. Very cool, very cool. Kevin, in your book, Yes, the Tormato Story, there, there's a good chunk dedicated to the studio equipment and instruments used in the making of Tormato. I, uh, I should mention to our listeners at this point that, listeners, if you are a music tech geek with a particular interest in prog rock-related 1970s equipment, you are going to love Kevin's book. Now, I, I am not necessarily a 1970s music gearhead, but I, I was fascinated by what you, Kevin, referred to as, quote, the rarest musical instrument in the world, end quote. And that would be the Birotron, which appears on most of the songs on Tormato. What can you tell us about the Birotron and how it came, came to be so rare? Well, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a long chapter and it's a, a long story, but basically the point of the Birotron, which uh, was invented by Dave Biro, was to address some of the problems with the Mellotron. And the Mellotron was the the forerunner, as it were, was one of the first progressive rock instruments that really took hold. So you had the Hammond organ, which was not really a rock instrument when it was first invented. Then you had the, the Mellotron, which gives the wonderful sound to things like um, uh, Beatles used the Mellotron quite a bit on Sgt. Pepper and, and so on. And it really became one of the, the, the first choice keyboard instruments for progressive rock because of the weird and wonderful sounds and atmospheres that you can create with the Mellotron. But the problem with it is that when you try and take it on the road, 
it's very fragile. It's very difficult to, to take ground on tour with you. It's very difficult to set up and keep in tune. And then because it's an, uh, an electric instrument, different voltages around the world used to make it uh, play at different speeds. And of course, when you played it at different speeds, uh, there would be a different pitch. So you couldn't keep it in tune with the rest of the band because of the variation in voltages around the world. And also, it works on a, 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 a tape loop. So each time you press a key on a Mellotron, it plays a single note on this tape loop. Once the tape gets to the end, it stops. And you have to take your hand off the, the key and a spring inside. <laughs> it sounds wonderfully analogue. Spring inside... Um, brings the tape back to the beginning so you can play another chord. So you can only play chords or, no or notes even on a Mellotron that lasts for eight seconds. And that was a serious, serious, uh, serious restriction to what musicians could do. So Dave Biro decided that he would solve this problem by keeping the tape aspect of the Mellotron, but using continuous loop tapes, which were identical to uh, eight-track tapes, which a lot of um, US cars had in the in the early mid-70s. And so rather than this loop of tape for the, the Mellotron, you could swap in and swap out uh, eight-track tapes into the Mellotron and to have different sounds that the keyboard would play. And the idea was to stock these different tapes for the Birotron in music shops around the world. So you could just hop into your local music shop and pick up a new set of, of tapes and make your Birotron sound completely different. So that was a great idea. And also it was much smaller, much more robust. In fact, they, they tested some of the prototypes by throwing them off tall buildings and out of helicopters and that sort of thing. So certainly it was, uh, those are all destroyed, but what they, was <laughs> what they were trying to do was to, was to make a much more robust instrument that could be used on the road by rock bands and particularly progressive rock bands. Um, but the problem was that in those days, so this is 1976, where they started developing it, uh, everything from the Mellotron had to be uh, miniaturized into this smaller, much, much smaller desktop, essentially, um, instrument. And so only a few companies in the world were capable of producing the components needed for the Birotron. And so it became incredibly expensive to develop this instrument. And in fact, with the reason why it's known as the, the most, uh, the rarest instrument in the world is because it never got out of the prototype stage. No one ever, even though a thousand musicians around the world, in people, including people like Paul McCartney himself, um, had ordered Birotrons, they never had them delivered. And there were only three people, two bands and Rick Wakeman of Yes, who ever got a, a prototype version to play with. And uh, Rick was really the only person who used it extensively in the studio on a couple of albums and live as well. In fact, he took four Birotrons on the Going for the One tour the year before Tormato. Uh, and he was very intrigued and he thought this was going to be the, the next greatest thing in keyboards. So he invested a lot of money himself personally in the development of the Birotron. And in fact, he owned the... the, uh, the uh, patent, um, patent, I think you say in America, for this instrument in 1978. So when he was, when he was using it to record Tormato, he had a kind of vested interest in doing so because he wanted people to, to buy this instrument. So he wanted to make sure that it was on there, uh, being used and being used live. 
So that was really the reason. It was so hideously expensive to to get the components made and to put it all together that it just fizzled out. And unfortunately, we're talking 78, 79 here, around 1980 is when digital keyboards started to appear and anything based on tape just disappeared. So that was the, the death knell for the Virotron, sadly. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Kevin, your, your new book, Yes, the Tormato Story, is, is incredibly comprehensive. The, the paperback edition is over 330 pages long. The amount of research you did for this book, the beautiful photographs, uh, many taken by your son, William Mulrine, the inclusion of, of fan photos, magazine ads, uh, patents, as you've mentioned, catalog illustrations, the amount of time and, and care you dedicated to the story of this one album is extraordinary. Could you ever see yourself doing this again for any other album? Well, the reason I did this this album like this and became so obsessed with it was because it was the first, yes, progressive music I'd ever heard, and in fact the first progressive rock of any type that I'd ever heard. Uh, so it was 1983, and a friend of mine lent me a, a cassette tape with 90125, which had just been released on the one side, and the five-year-old Tormato. And it's bizarre to think that that was 40 years ago that he, he lent me that. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, yeah, so so this became sort of indelibly um, in my musical culture and life, this album. So that's why I wanted to know everything there was to know about it. So yes, it did take me a long time. And in fact, over the course of, of, of developing and presenting the Yes Music podcast, uh, a lot of that time has been dedicated to finding out about this one album. So to answer your question, would I ever do it about another album? Yes, I, I, I would. And I've been... You know, and as I've finished this one, I've been thinking about what I could do next. It could be that I do I have a few thoughts about a series of books which maybe don't don't go in in quite so much depth as I have done this time, but but certainly cover some of the other albums. But I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'd have the, the the personal energy to to go quite as in depth on another album after having done this one. Yeah, it's remarkable the work you did. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned the cassette that you were given by a friend that had 90125, which was, well, here in the United States, that was my introduction to Yes. Uh, so that got, album got a lot of radio play um, on one side, and then you had Tormato on the other. Do you think you would have been as fascinated by Tormato had it not been part of your initial introduction to the band? Yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? Uh, probably not. Uh, but I suppose everyone has a an entry point, as you said, 90125 for you. And I suppose 90125 was for me as well, because because that was the first Yes music I'd heard, and at least it was around in the charts. And in those days, without the internet, and without really many books, and I certainly couldn't find any books about Yes, and they weren't in the, the music press at the time, except in reference to 90125 and Owner of a Lonely Heart, it was very difficult to find out anything about about the band, apart from just going to the record shop and seeing what the next record was that I could find um, of the band. So would I have been so obsessed with it? Probably not, but uh, but in a way I'm rather glad I have been. <laughs> for sure, for sure. It, Kevin, in talking with my friend Rachel Hathaway, who is a huge fan of Yes, and one of the executive producers of your book, she'd mentioned, in addition to your love of the band Yes, you're also a fan of the band Queen. Are, are there are there any Queen albums that you uh, see similarly polarizing the way uh, Tormato is for Yes fans in uh, in the Queen catalog? 
That's a good question. Equally polarising. There are certainly some albums in the Queen catalogue which are generally dismissed as not very good. Uh, For example, Hot Space uh, springs to mind and um, even a kind of magic in a way. I suppose a kind of magic might be might be one of the ones which is similar uh, because, again, it, I suppose it depends on your access point into Queen. If you came into Queen, as I did, watching the uh, that amazing video of, of uh, Bohemian Rhapsody on, on Top of the Pops and, and begging, I remember begging my mother, I suppose I must have been five or six at the time, begging my mother that I could stay up so that I could see the Queen video at the end because it was number one for so many weeks in in the UK, uh, if you entered your uh, love of, of Queen at that stage, then something like Hot Space or or the the much more pop focused uh, kind of magic might have been a bit a bit difficult to swallow in the same way as as Tormato was for some. Excellent, excellent. In talking again with my friend Rachel in preparation for our conversation, she'd hoped to get your take on on four other Yes albums that are similarly divisive. What I'd like to do now, Kevin, if it's all right with you, is is propose these albums and you tell me in a couple sentences where you stand on them. Would that would that be okay? Yeah, of course. Okay, great, great. The first was Tales from Topographic Oceans. Okay, yes, well, similarly, very contentious. Tales from Topographic Oceans uh, being a double album with just four songs, one one song on each side. Um, I'm very keen on tales. I always have been. Uh, then again, I'm a classically trained musician. I'm a violinist and a, a singer. So I'm used to very long form music anyway, symphonies and so on. So I don't mind the fact that we've got four 20 minute songs on that. I don't, uh, again, I can't really hear the padding. I mean, Rick Wakeman always talk, talks about padding, but I can't hear it. And um, I, I love it from start to finish, essentially. How about drama? Drama's a fantastic album. Absolutely fantastic album. And again, it's contentious because, uh, you know, it was the next album from Tom, on from Tormato and they had engaged uh, two completely different musicians and musicians from a very different background. So Rick Wakeman and John Anderson left to be replaced by Jeff Downs and uh, Trevor Horn of The Buggles, uh, who had just had that huge hit, uh, or were they just before having that huge hit? I can't remember the, the chronology of it. Um, video killed the radio star, and but the the point about them was that they were huge Yes fans themselves, the two of them. And so coming in and producing drama was a fantastic, uh, fantastic effort. And again, a bit like Tomato, but a lot more so than Tomato. Drama has become one of the actually one of the most loved. Um, yes, records of all time, despite the fact it hasn't got those two amazing characters, Rick Wakeman and John Anderson on it. Union. <laughs> How did I guess you were going to say Union? <laughs> so Union, or as Rick Wakeman refers to it, Onion, is <laughs> a, a very difficult Yes album. And contrary to most people's opinion of it, I'm I'm in the camp that's really likes uh so there were two bands coming together essentially who called themselves um yes east and yes west at, at one point there were two uh, one of whom produced the anderson bruford wakeman howe album just before union and the other camp who were working on 
on their own music. They brought all their ideas together, or they were they were some of them were pretty not formed, put it like that, the ideas, and tried to make a record together, but there was an awful lot too much uh, of the of the, the managers of the record companies who wanted to have a huge hit and a lot too little of the musicians actually working together. So it's called union. It's definitely not a union. It's, it couldn't be further from a union in terms of the music on it and the musicians on it and the way they worked together or didn't work together. So I like the ABWH songs from Union. I think they're some some really good ones, and I would have preferred them to be a second ABWH record rather than putting them on Union and messing about with them. There are an awful lot of session musicians on there, which is one of the reasons why I don't like some of it. And um, yeah, so 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 that's me. I like some of the songs. Some of the songs are great. Um, a lot of the other songs are not really not really my bag. Excellent, excellent. And lastly, open your eyes. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> open your eyes. So that's fascinating. So open your eyes is, I I came to, although I started listening in 1983, I didn't go and see Yes until 1998. And the current album at the time was Open Your Eyes. Open Your Eyes is ex- extremely important for Yes because it was when Billy Sherwood came in and really revitalized the group without Billy Sherwood and without Open Your Eyes we wouldn't have Yes Today I don't think in anything like the way we have had over the decades since then so I think it's in a very very important album I think it's one of those transition albums and despite the fact that that Billy Sherwood will tell you differently a lot of that material on there is heavily influenced by him and Chris Squire and the the project that they did, Conspiracy, it was called the project they did before, Open Your Eyes, and you can hear that music in the music on Open Your Eyes. So my overall feeling about Open Your Eyes is that individually I like each song, and there are two or three songs in there that I like a great deal. What I can't do is get from one end of the record to the other end. I can't listen to lots of them in a row because they all sound uh, very similar to me and it's a little bit like wading through treacle. But give me one of those songs in isolation and, uh, yes, I'll like it. Oh, great. Thank you so much for those answers, Kevin. That was so great. This has been so much fun, Kevin Mulrine. Thank you so much for talking with me. I I sincerely appreciate it. Listeners, I'm going to, to make sure there's a link in the description of this episode to Kevin's book. If you love Yes, if you love prog rock, if you're fascinated by polarizing works of art, as I am, uh, you, you need to check out, yes, the Tormato story. Kevin, thank you again so, so much for talking with me. And I'll make sure there's a link to Kevin, uh, to you can, you can find Kevin's podcast and uh, everything he is involved in, as he is involved in quite a lot. Thank you again so much. At this point, I am going to hand things off to our friend, Rachel from Des Moines, and she is going to give you the chart chat. So, without any further ado, take it away, Rachel. Thanks, Andy. Hello, and welcome back to Rachel's Chart Chat for another week. Thanks to everyone who listened last week and enjoyed the detour to the 90s and 2000s via the 50s and 60s. Thanks, Sherry, Tavy, and Jill, as always, for your kind comments. Now we're back to the Chart Chat home turf of the Hot 100s of the 70s and 80s. We're starting off with a chart from May 15th of 1976. At number 65 is a song called Looking Out for Number One by Bachman Turner Overdrive, and that was the peak for this one. 
This is the second single from BTO's fifth album, Head On. And the cover is like just a big picture of Randy Bachman's face. And supposedly the cover would fold out into a uh, poster with all four band members on it. Uh, this song sounds like uh, very jazzy. It sounds like might be bossa nova to me. And I read it was influenced by Randy Bachman's jazz upbringing, and he was under the tutelage of Lenny Bro. And so because of this very different sound for the band, they were getting played on different radio stations than they had before. And the song actually made it to number 15 on the adult contemporary charts. At number 47, we have the Brothers Johnson with their song, I'll Be Good To You. Uh, that would go on to hit number three. It was the debut uh, lead single from the debut album for the Brothers Johnson. And the album was oddly enough called Look Out For Number One. This was their highest charting single on the pop charts. Uh, the Brothers Johnson uh, made it to the top 10 on the Hot 100 three times, and they all correspond to three number one hits on the R&B chart. And those other two hits are Stomp and Strawberry Letter 23, which I've covered before for you on the chart chat. So it's nice to be able to complete the set, as it were. Uh, the group was from uh, Los Angeles, and I learned that they also played Hey Jude on that All This and World War II uh, Beatle cover album we talked about before. At number 40, we have Love is Alive by Gary Wright, which would go on to be a number two hit. This is the follow-up to Dreamweaver, which also hit number two. But Wikipedia points out that Love is Alive was on the chart for seven weeks longer. Uh, both songs are from Gary Wright's third album, The Dreamweaver. This one, I would say, is more up-tempo than their more famous track, and it was definitely a favorite on 70s Saturday Night. To me, it sounds like it may have been influenced by David Bowie's fame. Uh, turning to the 80s, we're in May 25th of 1985. At number 93 is Welcome to the Pleasure Dome by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. That would make it to number 48. This is from the album of the same name, The Group's First. Uh, this was their third single released in the U.S., uh, but it was their fourth U.K. single, and it was kind of under pressure because their first three singles had all hit number one, and this unfortunately, unfortunately broke their streak by peaking at number two uh, behind Easy Lover. Uh, so here in the U.S., this hit number 48 after Two Tribes was at 43 and Relax was at number 10. And I wanted to include this uh, for a yes reference because uh, Trevor Horn did the production on this one, outstanding as usual for him. Uh, since we have Kevin from the Yes Music Podcast, try to get a Yes connection there. And also for me, I came to appreciate this one when it was used in Wonder Woman 84. Uh, so shout out to any Pedro Pascal fans out there. Uh, at number 84 is a song called All You Zombies by the Hooters. And this doesn't count because I accidentally listened to the wrong version, an earlier version than the one that appeared on the charts, but I liked it better. Uh, so maybe you will too. So I'll throw it on the playlist. And I did happen to learn that the band's name came from a recording technician trying to refer to the instrument, the melodica. Didn't know the name and called it the Hooter. So they decided to make that their name. And I learned that the band predated the restaurant. So good for them. At number 82 is a song called Square Rooms by Al Corley. That would make it to number 80. This was the debut single for Al, who had recently been on Dynasty as Stephen, Crystal Carrington's stepson. And the song charted in Europe in addition to the U.S. and, you know, different countries in Europe. And it was number one in France. 
and uh, Square Rooms was co-written and produced by Harold Faltermeyer, who is at number four this week with his hit Axel F. At number 79 is People Are People by Depeche Mode. That would make it to number 13. And I feel like this song is pretty well known at this point, but I wanted to mention it because it was Depeche Mode's first appearance on the US Hot 100 after having many hits in their native UK since 1981. And if you like hearing Depeche Mode, uh, I may remind you, stop on by the VJ Big Suit Twitch stream. And he's also been playing Depeche Mode's newest single, which is also very enjoyable. At number 77 is a song called Save the Night for Me by Maureen Steele. This is the second single from Maureen's only album called Nature of the Beast. Uh, she's from Worcester, Mass, and she was on the Motown label. The album was produced by Steve Barry, uh, who we mentioned a few weeks ago in the TV themes episode. He was behind a lot of those high-charting uh, TV theme songs in the 70s. And uh, also produced by Maureen's brother, Bobby, who was the VP of A&R at Motown at the time. So that's a big hmm on that one. Uh, but this, to me, this song sounds like a Madonna attempt. And I read a kind of fairly negative review on the Wikipedia page of the album where it's calling her a derivative of not just Madonna, but, quote, virtually every singer to crack the top ten in the past three years. So it, it, maybe it was, uh, they're trying to, it, maybe she wasn't successful because she didn't have her own sound. I don't know, I kind of like this one. I, I learned that she uh, is no longer in music. She went on to work in real estate with her husband. At number 60 is Through the Fire by Shaka Khan, and 60 was the peak for that one. This is the third single from her album, I Feel For You. And this is, uh, you know, more of a ballad, a uh, change of pace of what I think of for Shaka Khan. And so this was made it to number 60, and I Feel For You had been a number three hit. But if you look into the album uh, in, in Spotify, it has the play counts, and Through the Fire has many more plays, um, you know, despite not even hitting the top 40. And maybe it has a good, it's on a good playlist, like some kind of like a romantic playlist people like to pull up. I don't know, but it's a, another, another great one from Shaka Khan. And for another 70s chart this week, uh, in May 24th of 1975, at number 88 is a song called You Need Love by Styx, and 88 was the peak for that one. This is the second single off of Styx 2, which was released after Lady became a, a surprise smash in 74 and 75. And I include this mostly as a note to myself to listen to more of that early Styx stuff. And I want to share my theory that I think Dennis DeYoung would have been happier in the long run if he could have written and performed rock musicals like I rather than being a quote-unquote rock star he just has a lot of theater kid energy to me um, although it's worth noting that James uh, J.Y. Young does vocals on You Need Love it's not but Dennis wrote it at number 62 is a song Just Like Romeo and Juliet by Sha Na Na that would make it to number 55 and I had to include this one for all of the Andy Daly and Comedy Bang Bang fans out there this was Sha Na Na's highest charting single they did have one other Hot 100 appearance, ironically called Top 40, which only made it to number 84. Uh, I learned that the song was originally done by a group called The Reflections, and it was a nine, number six hit for that group, uh, who was out of Detroit. The single that charted was off the album Sha Na Now, and it has much more of a disco sound. Uh, think Dewey Cox doing Starman. And then I think they redid it for their TV show in more of the traditional style, and that's what's available on Spotify on their greatest hits.
Up next at number 48 is the song T-R-O-U-B-L-E by Elvis Presley. That made it to number 35. This was the first single from Elvis's 22nd album called Today. I learned that in 1958, Elvis had recorded a different song called Trouble, No Spelling, which is a Lieber and Stoller composition for the King Creole soundtrack. Uh, T-R-O-U-B-L-E, spelled out, uh, hit number 11, also on the country chart. And then in 1992, Travis Tritt covered the song for his album of the same name and took it to number 13. And that was the only version I had heard for quite a long time. That's how I was introduced to the song. And maybe some of you came to know it the same way. And finally, from the 70s this week, at number 18, is the song Cut the Cake by the group Average White Band. That made it to number four, and it was a number one R&B hit. This is the first single from the album of the same name, which is the group's third. The album was recorded in the aftermath of losing their drummer, Robbie McIntosh, to a heroin overdose. They would have lost vocalist and multi-instrumentalist Alan Gorey as well, but Cher happened to be at the same party they were and saved his life by keeping him conscious long enough to recover. Average White Band is known more for Pick Up the Pieces, but I think this is a fun, another fun one. Uh, this one definitely has more singing. The other one I think is considered basically an instrumental, though it does have that chant in the middle. Uh, well, that's all for me this week. Thanks so much for listening. Back to you, Andy. Thank you, Rachel. As always, awesome stuff. This has been episode 283 of the People Are the Enemy podcast. Our theme song is Walrus Love by Nokia Ocean. You can find that song and more at pizzapuppies.bandcamp.com. My name is Andy Mascola. You can purchase my novels via Amazon and other online book retailers in both paperback and ebook formats for as little as $1.99. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you, Rachel from Des Moines. Thank you, Kevin Mulrine. We love you. Peace.